everyone. Welcome to the show in conversation with Lisa Burke. Now, earlier this summer, it won't have gone unnoticed to you that Luxembourg and the surrounding regions experienced one of the worst floods in living memory for a few people. Indeed, it was a flood which happens about once every hundred years from what records we have to go on. On hand to try to help with this natural disaster were the CGDs, Corps Grand Ducal d'Incendie et de Secours. In English, the Luxembourg Fire and Rescue Corps. Today, I'm talking to Cédric Ganser, who has been with the rescue services since 2017. By training, he's a firefighter with the rank of captain, and now with CGDs, he's in charge of the Department of General Direction. That entails communication, international relations and legal questions, where he supports the work of the General Director. Previously, he has also worked in diplomacy, and since 2004, he himself is a volunteer firefighter in the commune of Niederhanven. Welcome to RTL Cédric. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. First of all, please explain to our audience what CGDIS is. I'm very happy to address the English-speaking community of Luxembourg because it's something we don't do every day. We usually use the French and German means to explain who we are, how the rescue services are set up in Luxembourg. Very briefly, before 2018, the rescue services were organized in different entities. We had several units working together on the field of operations, but had different structures, different teaching and different means of working. Somehow it worked out, but there was definitely a need to centralize also because we had less personnel available on the field. So 2018, there was a massive reform with the creation of the Luxembourg Fire and Rescue Corps. And nowadays, we are the only unit responsible for the rescue services in Luxembourg. When there was an emergency before, it's amazing how you managed to come together. Yes, well, it used to work on a communal basis. It means that we had 100 centres with mainly volunteer firefighters who were under the responsibility of their mayors. It worked, it still works. We still have as a main pillar of the rescue services in Luxembourg, the volunteers. We have around 4,000 people, 4,000 volunteers who on a daily basis invest their time beside family and job to help the population. But somehow the need was there to centralize and to give more means to the rescue services. And the big change now is that beside the volunteers who are still very active. We are also hiring professional firefighters. We have now around 600 of them in the whole country whose role is to support the volunteers in their daily missions. So up until this time, we've only had about 600 professional firefighters. No, before that, we had far less than 600. That's the point today. Today, you have one central unit. You have 4,000 volunteers. They are supported by 600 professionals. These figures are meant to increase in the future. You also have around 150 administrative staff. When it comes to the volunteers, how can one become a volunteer? That's an excellent question. I feel the main thing one's need to do this is to have the passion for helping people, being ready to work as a team player. That's one of the first things you learn when you start your firefighting career as a volunteer or a professional, that you always work in a team, always. And as we are in Luxembourg, always the question of the languages. So one should be able to master the three national languages, French, German and Luxembourgish with English as an additional, of course, in order to be able to communicate with the people you are helping. 
You've talked about the firefighters, but of course you're a rescue centre and it's not just about fire and indeed firefighters don't always deal with fire. But I'm thinking also firefighters need to be very strong. Not anybody can just become a firefighter. You are very right that the name firefighter is not the right name. In French, you say pompier, it's more generic, because 85% of all our missions are not linked to fire or technical help, but medical support for the population. So being it's ambulance, emergency medical, so the SAMU in, in Luxembourg, and the first responder system, which is a system where the population can be alerted from their home or their workplace and and drive with their private car with a rescue kit to a place where there's a life-threatening action running to help the people um, until the ambulance, respectively the doctor, comes to place. So just so that I can be clear on behalf of our audience, when we talk about the current 600, hopefully soon to increase, and what we're calling firefighters, they're the same people who go out with the ambulances, they're the same people who go out with the SAMU centres, they're the same people who go out for major accidents. You're absolutely right. The firefighters, if they're volunteer or professional, they all have the same missions and are very broad missions, helping people on the medical point of view, but they have to be trained to help for technical rescue and firefighting. So if one was to become a volunteer, they have to have the languages, they have to have the passion, they have to have the want to be a team player. But beyond that, they will be trained. Absolutely. In technical and medical areas. Absolutely. If one is interested, it's very easy. Either present yourself to the first fire station in your neighborhood or you can visit our website. The procedure is quite simple. Talk to our people, start your teaching, medical, first aid and so on. Also technical. After a few weeks, few months, you can start in your local fire center. And when I look at the website, you have four, five missions, perhaps, to protect and save people, protect and save animals, protect and save goods, protect nature, and then teach the population in matters of first aid and resilience, etc. So just talk us through some of those things. I mean, it all came to the fore recently with the flooding. So how did you deal with that? There was a lot of criticism as well in the press about how you dealt with it. So let's address both aspects, how you dealt with it, how you dealt with the criticism and any lessons learned, as they say. So the first thing is that we are a new public establishment since 2018. We are growing. We are in a learning process. And over the past years, I would say, unfortunately, we already had a few experiences with, let's call it catastrophes or bigger events. We had massive fires, vegetation fires in the summer 2019 with the high temperatures. We've had floods, but on a regional level. And we also had this famous tornado 2019. So these are things where we gathered a lot of experience, especially for the command structure. Obviously, when we saw the weather forecasts mid-July, we anticipated, as we always do. So we opened our crisis section. We also increased the number of personnel responding to rescue calls in the 112 call center. We permanently informed our people on the field because we were in contact with the national weather forecast, also uh, with the AGE, Administration de la Gestion de l'Eau. Our people were informed, asked to increase their capacities. We also had contact with the communes because finally the communes are in charge of their own sector. So before the floods themselves, a lot happened. But of course, you never know what is going to come 
Ante and the worst thing about the flooding, perhaps, that was hard to estimate, to anticipate, is the water level in the water tables already. You're absolutely right. So there is a website that everybody can uh, visit where everything is very transparent, where you see the water levels, in theory, how they may increase, how they may stabilize and so on. So we use that. Obviously, people who are used to be in areas where sometimes you have high water reacted differently than some people that never expected that. So you mentioned the word resilience, and that's something that is very important for the future. The rescue services obviously could help in the first hours. We delivered sandbags to the population. We tried to protect houses and other buildings that could be. Uh, up to a certain level. But finally, this was a na national event, so it was difficult or almost impossible for us to be everywhere at that time. So the population plays a central role in this also. Well, hopefully with the volunteer service and, as you say, the end point resting with the communes, everybody had their own jigsaw part to play in it. Exactly. So when you think about then from your central point, you said you increased the numbers of people taking the phone calls with that very important number 112, which will get you through to the emergency services. Did you have enough people to take those calls? We had. I have to mention that it was also a flooding on that point of view. We had to manage 8,400 calls within 24 hours, which led to 1,500 interventions of the rescue services nationwide, 10 times more than on a normal day, I would say. We also mobilized our volunteers, of course. It would not have been possible to cope with the situation without them. But we also mobilized our special units. We have our divers who had a very central role, obviously, to evacuate people, to save people from the high water, but also from the stream. So from that point of view, I feel we could not have mobilized more people. And so the criticism that I've seen is about the lack of advice beforehand, the fact that perhaps there could have been slightly earlier advice given for people to move their possessions to higher ground and move themselves out of low-lying properties, for example. Yes, it's. I feel it's for having experienced it on that special night. Um, it's always easier afterwards than before. We had forecasts. We were in contact with authorities, with the local authorities. I feel a lot has been done. We also worked with the press, who communicated with their public. The communes used um, their local SMS system, the SMS to citizen system. In the areas where we knew or we expected that there could be hotspots, like Eschternach and the whole Vallée de la Sur, when I was present, firefighters went through the villages at night and went door to door to inform the people that the water was coming, explaining them that it could be a century height. But, you know, it's just theory at that moment. I have to mention that with the communes, we also set up shelters for the population at that time. So a lot has been done, but obviously this happened at night and then it's more difficult to reach the population. So nevertheless, we are clear that there's always room for improvement after every major event and even smaller ones. We always do a study about it in order to pick out the things that should or could be improved that will happen for this specific event. But even on a national level, many voices raised to say 
what could be better. There are two major things that I feel are important. The first one is the resilience of the population. There are means for the population to gather information on these official websites and also by listening to the press. There's also this feeling of solidarity. People should help each other. And beside that, there's the public warning question. Nowadays, there are more means to address the population in these cases. There are plans in that direction, but it goes beyond that. It's also like um, renaturing the rivers, creating polders. We also have the mean to use sirens that you have in the villages that for the moment are only planned to be used in case of a nuclear alert. These are reflections that are ongoing for the future. RTL Original Podcast. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's often only in hindsight that we can see how things could have been done better. And it's wonderful to know that at least it will be spoken about and plans will be made for improvements where possible. And it's a very complex picture. And it's very good to know that there will be increased firefighters, both professional and volunteer in the future. When it comes to an event such as the flooding we had a few weeks ago in Luxembourg and, of course, the nearby regions as well, what are the hardest things to mobilise logistically? What are the hardest aspects of such a night? That's a very good question. I can only talk about my own level since I was in the crisis centre in the beginning. And the first difficulty in that case is just to have an overview of what is happening on the field. Because on a local level in every commune, you had several interventions running parallelly. So in that moment, our fire stations work in an autonomous way. They just cope with the situation and the report to the 112. So that's probably the most difficult part. I have to say that we had people that were personally impacted by the floods. Their own homes were flooded and they continued working for the others. We had three fire stations that were flooded and continued working. So these are all aspects that, yes, you have to combine. And I feel that's really difficulty, having the overview and then dispatch the means where they are the most needed. And at that point, when you are in that red phase, as I call it, when it's very complicated, you don't have enough capacities to cope for everything. At that point, we had to decide to concentrate our efforts on saving lives. We have saved 27 people from the water that night. In total, we have evacuated more than 500 people. And that was our primary mission at that time. And then later on, we tried to save the goods and so on and so on. And what about animals? I'm just asking about animals because it says on your mission statement that you have to protect and save people, animals, goods, nature. So do you deal with them in that order? A life is always the most important. So we don't do really the difference. For example, when we evacuated people, of course, we took the pets with them, obviously. We didn't make any difference. What maybe can be mentioned is the fact that even though we were really, really busy on that night and the following days, Luxembourg managed to support their neighbors. You have probably seen the pictures from the Belgian border and the German border where we sent, in Belgium, we sent divers the first night and they have, and I, I have to stress the word, they saved lives, lives of people who were really, really in bad trouble at that moment, at night. And uh, two days after the events, we sent and ambulances and uh, firefighters and people from the Luxembourg Red Cross over the border to Germany to cope with a situation that was even more catastrophic there than it was here. Because luckily or because we did our best, there were no casualties here in Luxembourg, finally. 
We were very, very lucky. And so by the sounds that you, you have very good communication with the border countries as well. That's absolutely true. Our 112 call center is the only emergency number call center for Luxembourg. The 112 is a very important number for our expat inhabitants because it's the one number that works throughout Europe if you need help for the rescue services. So that's one of the messages that I would like to propose to your listeners. And since we have this multinationality in Luxembourg, Our call center, the 112, is in permanent contact with our three neighboring countries because most of the well, many interventions can be on the border with the highways and so on. So we are in permanent contact on that level. And we are also beyond that on an international level in contact with European authorities, with the United Nations. No later than this week, we sent one expert to Haiti after the earthquake. This is something that happens on a very regular basis. It's wonderful to have that global connection as well, because by all means, we learn from one another and from emergencies around the world. Just to underline the importance of that number 112, at what point should somebody call that number and for what purpose? It's an emergency number. So maybe a few figures will show the importance of that. The 112 call centre gets around 400,000 calls a year. And out of these 400,000 calls, we have 60,000 interventions. So it means that 25% only of all these calls lead to an intervention. So the message here is that people should call the rescue services when they are in an emergency situation and that if they need the information about the hospital of duty of the vet that could help their cat or their dog, maybe they can find information on the internet and uh, leave the lines for the people who may be in a real urgent situation. So you're saying that some people call the emergency helpline 112 to find out where their local vet is or which pharmacy is open? It happens very regularly, but we understand that because the level of... How should I explain that? A person has water in its cellar, 10 centimeters. Some people call the rescue services. Other people will think they don't need help. They will cope with the situation themselves. It's like when you hurt yourself, your feeling of the pain can be different than the one of your neighbor, you know. So we have to respect the fact that some people feel that in some situation they need the rescue services, while others don't necessarily have the same feeling about it. I understand. So it's a psychological element of security as well. But just to truly emphasize that the 112 number, which works across Europe, is an emergency helpline for firefighters dealing with fire, flooding or ambulance services. Exactly. You're absolutely right. <laughs> just to underline and have it as correct as we possibly can. How do you deal with the anticipation of events. You're always on standby. How do you continue to train during these standby sessions? Because you're ricocheting from calm periods, hopefully long periods of calm, to a sudden event, a sudden disaster. How do you deal with that mix? 
Well, people are not permanently on duty, of course. So you have your own duty times. You know that during that moment, you have to be ready for a call. The volunteers choose their duty times according to their availability. A volunteer has also the chance that's written in the law that created the CGDs, the Luxembourg Fire and Rescue Corps, that they have the right to have additional holidays for training means. They also have a little financial support when they are on duty. I can give the figures because they're absolutely transparent. If I'm on duty at my home, I'm sitting at my dinner desk with my family and my kids, but I'm on duty. So it means when I'm cold, I have to stand up, drive to my fire station, climb into my truck and go into intervention. I get one euro each hour. I'm available for helping other people. If you are on duty in your fire station, means that then you have to drive out faster. Then you get 10 euros each hour you are on duty. Wow. Okay. That's surprisingly low, I think, for Luxembourg, in fact. But it also just shows how much of a volunteer service this truly is. It's volunteering. It's absolutely that. And it's not the idea of paying people. It's the idea of avoiding for the people investing their time, having to pay something to do it. So the idea is that it should cover the cost of your diesel or oil expenses and stuff like this. That's more the idea. It's really volunteering. And I don't believe that any volunteer in this country, would do this just for the money. That's no. not the aim of the thing. No, it's an amazing feeling to give back to your community and to belong to your community in such a cohesive manner and at a time where you can really help people if you're able-bodied and willing. That's true. And there's another positive point for the people who are volunteering. It's just the family they are growing into. I mean, the firefighters are a kind of a family. We are also organizing activities outside of the duty times. Our families know each other. So, I mean, it's it's like a club also. And that's a very important factor. This cultural factor, yeah, that's how you keep people motivated, I feel. Of course, you're building a very strong community and one that has to work together in such a cohesive and rapid way when the events do unfold. We... We'll just circle back to the beginning where you spoke about increased recruitment. You're also moving premises very soon. So tell us about both the recruitment procedure for the professional set of firefighters and also that move to a new training centre. Yes. So I mentioned the volunteering before. That's throughout the year. Always open for volunteers. Absolutely. And again, they are the pillar holding that all stuff together. It wouldn't work without them. We are also hiring professional firefighters to support the volunteers, obviously, and to cope with missions where they have to be faster than the volunteers who are driving from their own home to the fire station. So we are recruiting now 50 to 60 firefighters, women, men, who are, I would not say young, there's no limit, but who are dynamic enough and willing to do these missions. The conditions are to have 11 years of school, to be able to master the three national languages because it's a necessity for the moment at the teaching level, but also on the field of operations. There's a sports test, which is not too tough, but the idea is to have people able to improve over a time of two years of teaching. So we offer very various and interesting teaching, in my point of view, both in medical field, but also technical and firefighting level. And within that system, what would you say are the other fields available to the firefighters? Because I know you've got various units. Yes. So we we spoke about the main missions, but we have 10 special units. Um, 
So we have, for example, a dog rescue unit, our divers unit, but we also have the humanitarian intervention team. That's a team of people who are trained, especially for missions abroad. Our expert who is now in Haiti is a member of that specific unit. We have also a psychological unit in order to support victims of incidents, but also people just witnessing it or even our own teams if they need support. So the underlying message is that you're open all year round for volunteers. If they are fit and able and can speak at least the three minimal languages of the country, you have an opening now for professional firefighters. All of the details on the website. You're moving to brand new premises uh, near Clochdor, I believe. And more importantly than all, perhaps we should leave our listeners with the number 112, which should only be used in true emergencies. And that number is valid across Europe. The 112 is always there for you. Call our operators when the need is there. Have you any other information you'd like to to give our listeners? Yeah, maybe something for the families living uh, around the city centre. As you mentioned, we are moving now in our new premises, in our new national fire centre in Cloche d'Or, in Gasperich. And on the 12th of September, that's a Sunday in the morning, around 10 a.m., the firefighters from the city of Luxembourg will move from their old fire station, which they had for more than 50 years in the Route d'Arlon, and they will move in a convoy of more than 30 vehicles throughout the city, the city centre also, and then will move in their new premises. So that's something quite unique for us. And if the population is interested just to watch it, the start is planned for 10.30 Sunday 12th of September. So 10.30 Sunday, 12th of September, we'll have this convoy of lovely red shiny vehicles coming from Route d'Arlon to the new premises in Gasperich. So if you like large shiny vehicles, whatever age you are, and people in uniform, that sounds like a real treat. It's wonderful to have you here to talk through the recent episode, the devastating episode of the flooding in Luxembourg, how you dealt with it, how you supported neighbouring countries, and also to hear underlying and stressing again that the 112 number is not for random questions, but it truly is an emergency line. And for anybody who would like to be a volunteer or a firefighter, all of the information is on your website. Dear listeners, it's so great to have you with me as always. You can always contact me via social media or through the website or TL Today, of course, as well. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you can, because it helps for my podcast to be found. And for myself and the team here at RTL today, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Mm-hmm.